Please pray with me. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. Amen. What on earth is going on? Probably some of you have been asking that question just as I have over the last week and a half or so. As many of you know, my family headed out to New England last week. And could we have been traveling at a stranger time? I think not. We landed in Boston, and it was like the world changed literally overnight. Historical sites that we had just walked through the day before were closed. We had dinner in a restaurant one night, and the very next day, the mayor ordered that restaurants shift to curbside or takeout only. Coming home was surreal, too. I think we had a flight of about 30 people on a plane that could have easily accommodated 150. What is going on? The world feels like it's going crazy. We came home, and of course, we had to run to King Supers after being gone for a week. And we found that they were limiting the number of bottles of hand soap that we could buy, and tissue, and other things. What on earth is, go excuse me, is going on? I know that is the question that keeps rattling around many of our minds as we watch our society's response to this crisis. Why toilet paper? What is going on? Well, similarly, that's the question that the disciples of Jesus were asking in the passage that I read to us earlier from John chapter 9. Jesus, what is going on? So as we hear them ask that question, and as we wrestle with the question in the midst of our own circumstances, let's understand this passage and what it has to say to us in the midst of these very strange days. Now there's a lot going on in this passage. It was a very long passage. First, we've got the disciples' question about the blind man and Jesus' response. Then we have the actual healing of the blind man. Then we have that whole long and, and protracted questioning going back and forth between the Pharisees and the man and his parents and the Pharisees again. And then the final sort of punchline where Jesus kind of gives it to the Pharisees and basically says, you're actually the blind ones. But I want to focus our attention this morning just on that very first bit. Just take a sort of a bite-sized chunk of it. Those first few verses with the disciples' question and Jesus' response. So if you want to follow along in a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 9 and read with me. In verse 1, as he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Wow, guys, that is really, really sensitive toward the, uh, those with disabilities. Is this birth defect the blind guy's fault, or is it his parents' fault? What, what kind of a question is that, even? Well, actually, it was a question that came very much so out of the commonly held theology of suffering that Jews in Jesus' day held. If you suffer something major... You must have deserved it. That's basically what they thought. 
We see that all the way back in the ancient book of Job. When Job loses everything and his world comes crashing down around him, his so-called friends come to him and comfort him. And the first two of them, what did they ask? They said, what'd you do, basically? Say, what did you do? Identify what you did, make it right, so that you can uh, receive God's blessing again. What consolation. Now, the whole point of the book of Job is that suffering is just the byproduct of life in a broken world that is in rebellion against its creator king. Sometimes suffering just is, and we don't get to know the whys and the, and the what fors. That's the point of the book of Job. He never gets to know why it is that he suffered. To his experience, the suffering just is. But obviously, first century Judaism had not remembered or embraced that particular theology of suffering because they still tightly held to the belief that if you were born with a birth defect or if some great tragedy happened to you, befell you or your family, you must have done something, or in the case of birth defects, your parents must have done something to offend God. Now, unfortunately, ancient Judaism is not the only place where we encounter that kind of thinking. I've actually been fairly surprised that I haven't heard anything about the doom and gloom fire and brimstone types declaring COVID-19 as God's wrath poured out on humanity. I'm sure someone somewhere is saying it. Frankly, I'm glad I don't know about it. Because I remember other iterations of that sick theology. The fundamentalist preacher who declared 9-11 as God's judgment upon the people of the United States. The groups that declared AIDS as God's judgment on homosexuals and drug users and so forth, and on and on it goes. Now on one level, it's natural to want to look for a larger meaning when something like a global pandemic sweeps through. Is God saying something to us as human beings, as a, as a race, the human race in 2020? Is he saying something to us as a church? I would posit that the answer to that first question is no. But the answer to the second is a resounding absolutely yes. Take a look at Jesus' answer to the disciples. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Right off the bat, Jesus cuts through this twisted, sick understanding of God and punishment and evil and suffering. You don't have to look for the cause behind this suffering, guys. You have to look for a cause behind massive global suffering. Because on one level, you can just read Genesis chapter 3 and get the only answer you really need. Adam and Eve, we know, were placed in Eden. They were given all they could possibly want or need. Yet they chose to rebel. If you were in worship a few weeks ago, you may remember when we talked about the temptations that Jesus, uh, Satan rather hit Jesus with in the wilderness. 
he was tempted with the same thing that Adam and Eve fell to, the temptation to believe that somehow God is holding out on us, that he is not truly good, that his ways and plans and purpose for us is not somehow truly good or in our best interest. And therefore, we should take matters into our own hands and manage for ourselves. That was the temptation that Adam and Eve fell to. That was their act of rebellion, taking matters into their own hands in the form of an apple. And as a result, God pronounces the consequences of their rebellion. The whole creation is now off kilter. Everything exists in some measure of rebellion against its creator. And sadly, suffering, pain, disease, and death are among the fruits of this. So no, Jesus says, neither this man sinned nor his parents. At least not in any way that's any worse than anybody ever else, anyone else ever has, rather. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, St. Paul writes. We all live in a world that is still retching with the heaves of Adam and Eve's rebellion. This is not God's judgment on this man or his parents. The global coronavirus is not God's judgment. As we saw in John chapter 3 two weeks ago, according to Jesus, the world already stands condemned. The moment God pronounced the consequences of human rebellion after Adam and Eve, that was it. There's the judgment. Live with the consequences of your own rebellion and attempts to self-master. That is the default state of the world, friends. God does not need to send further judgment upon it. Even in our passage where later on where Jesus says, you know, I came for judgment and those that uh, are blind will see and those who see are blind, he's just stating, look, I'm the, the sort of lightning rod that reveals these things. When he says, I've come for judgment, he's not saying, I've come to point the finger at these people. He's basically saying, they already stand where they stand. I've just come as the dividing line to make it known. God does not need to send for their judgment. Rather, it's quite the opposite. What God has done is send his son into the world to effect the redemption of all things, to overturn the effects of sin, death, and disease. Bad stuff doesn't happen to us because we are bad. But because bad stuff happens in this world, it creates a, a, a contrast against which we can see the glory of God that much clearer. You remember way back to you know, high school chemistry or whatnot where you worked with contrasts, you know, like kind of a, a dye that you would put into a solution so that you could see something stand out. It creates a contrast. In the case of this blind man, it was that Jesus could demonstrate his divine power to heal and redeem all things. In the case of the broader global situation, it created the conditions through which the glorious love of God could be displayed in his self-sacrifice on the cross, his death for the life of the whole world. 
O happy fault which gained for us so great and glorious a Redeemer, as we will pray at the Easter Vigil, Lord willing. And as Jesus goes on to say, it creates the conditions through which the glory of God can continue to be manifest, displaying Jesus as the light of the world. That is the message to us as the church. This is what this time of global pandemic has to say to us. We who are among the redeemed, baptized followers of Jesus Christ, we carry the very presence of Christ with us and within us by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. So while we are in the world, Jesus within us, Jesus with us is the light of the world, still present. We continue with the capacity, and as Jesus puts it to us right here, the calling to display the glory of God against the contrasting backdrop of the dark circumstances of our time. As I've said in some of my emails this week, this truly could be our finest hour as the Church of Jesus Christ in this generation. I think we're already well aware that the far-reaching implications of this global pandemic will be one of the defining events and the, the shaping and sculpting events of our future, of our generation. So by extension, it has the potential to define how the church rises up, how the church meets the challenge, proclaims the gospel of love and hope against this backdrop of an uncertain time, of fear, of isolation. One of the ways that Christianity overcame the persecutions of the Roman Empire in the very first generations of the church came in the face of one of Rome's darkest hours, a plague, a plague that killed nearly half the population of the city of Rome and decimated, decimation means one in 10, wiped out one in 10 people across the empire, across the whole Mediterranean world. You see, when faced with plague, many of the elites of the Roman capital fled. They ran to their villas. You know, they all had these villas, you know, either up in the mountains or along the coast. And that's where they fled to. They ran for their lives, leaving the city to more or less fend for itself. Anybody who could get out did, except for these believers, these crazy followers of some obscure Jewish rabbi named Jesus. These Jesus followers stayed, many of them despite the fact that they had the means to get out. While the elites abandoned the city and even oftentimes abandoned sick members of their own families, the Christ followers actually came in and cared for them. While the Christians would still face official persecutions in the generations that followed until the time of Constantine, their care of their neighbors during the plague shaped public opinion about this new Christianity. A lot of Roman citizens actually became followers of Jesus because of the witness of these people who loved them well in their darkest hour. It defined the church in that generation as the people who cared even when everyone else was looking out only for themselves. But for you and I, right here in our 
socially distanced locations, bringing the light of Christ doesn't have to feel grand or overwhelming. We don't need to go rushing in to expose ourselves to this virus. Bringing the light of Christ, in fact, is quite the opposite. It can be very simple in our day. The Bishop of New England shared this story with me this past week. He told me about how his mother back in England, separated from her family who are here, and who is older and therefore in the higher risk category for the virus, called him this week to share with him how blessed she had been. See, her neighbor in their town left flowers and a card for her just on the front porch. Didn't ring the doorbell or anything, just left it for her so that she found it. And in the card, she suggested that they meet for coffee over the back fence, at least six feet away from one another. This neighbor was loving her creatively and in a way that was quite possible even in this strange time of imposed social isolation. She checked up on her. She made sure that even though she lives alone, she knew she isn't truly alone, that there were people in this world, in her community, who cared about her and for her. Similarly, someone told me this week about a post they saw of a dad who called the other dads of his block together to have a beer. And they stood in a circle six feet apart from each other, all brought their own beer and hung out talked and shared stories and jokes and the griefs. He brought community to his fellow dads that would, of course, otherwise feel quite isolated, alone, and then, of course, leading to frustration and all other sorts of feelings. We can do this, people of God. We can bring the love and community of the gospel to one another and to our neighbors, even if we are ordered to shelter in place and maintain distance. Imagine what it would be like if every single follower of Jesus found something like that, a simple way to love and care for their neighbors and help them know that they are not alone, that there is someone to talk to or to reach out to when they feel alone, isolated, scared. It could be powerful. It could define this generation just the way Christian responses to the plague defined the early church. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Brothers and sisters of Christ our hope. It may feel like some sort of strange twilight out there where we find ourselves asking, what in the world is going on? But I can tell you this, it is not night. While you and I carry with us and within us the presence of Christ by his Holy Spirit, the light of Christ is in this world. Night may be coming when no one can work, but not today. Not in the midst of this global pandemic. Today we work the works of him who sent our Lord Christ, the works of him who sent us. So let's pray together. Lord Christ, I pray that you 
would first of all send us again the comfort of knowing that you are with us, that you are within us, and that therefore we have with us the light of this world. And then, Lord, I pray that you would spark in us creativity, creativity to know how we can maintain connection with one another, with your body. And also, Lord, how we can, in simple and safe ways, express your love and your care to neighbors around us who are even more bewildered, perhaps even frightened by what is going on. Lord, raise up your church in this hour. We pray in your mighty name, our Lord, our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.